Welcome to Main Engine Cutoff. I'm Anthony Colangelo, and today we've got two guests from Redwire joining us. Uh, one returning to the show, Dr. Molly Mulligan, uh, who works in business development at Redwire. You may remember that uh, she was one of the crew that joined me on stage at Space Symposium to talk about uh, mostly LEO commercial space stations. Um, she's joining us alongside Dr. Ken Savin, the chief scientific officer at Redwire. Uh, they're here to talk about exciting news that they uh, successfully printed a human knee meniscus on board the International Space Station using their biofabrication facility. Um, we are going to talk all about that, about how it fits in overall to some of the health-focused um, side of uh, space development at large, both for human health, but also health down here on the ground, how it fits into commercial space station markets for sure. A whole bunch of different things to dive into from science to business I think you'll enjoy the conversation. It was a really fun time talking with them, so hope you enjoy the show. All right, we're here with a couple of doctors of all varieties. Dr. Molly Mulligan returning to the show after a couple of months. How's it going out there? Good. Thanks for having me back, Anthony. Yeah, we got Dr. Ken, is it Savin? I should have asked pronunciation before this. Savin. Savin, got it. Don't know which kind of A it is. Um, so it's been, a, I'm a little late getting around to finally recording this because your news was a couple of weeks, if not months ago at this point, uh, based on the schedule of everything. But there's been some really cool stuff that you've been working on up on the ISS. And um, I really want to dive into the, the details of that, but talk a little bit bigger picture as well as the way it fits in. Um, and Molly, the last time you and I chatted, we were talking about um, more the business side of, of this kind of, uh, the kind of work that you're doing. So um, I'm not sure which one of you would, would like to maybe give us the backstory on the biofabrication facility. And uh, there's been maybe a couple iterations where it was up on ISS for a little bit, came back down to the ground and headed back up for this round. Um, but I would love to hear the story of how the idea got started, how it was initially developed and, and where it got to today. Uh, so BFF has been a real, I mean, a real game changer. It's the first time people have truly bioprinted in space. And it all started, I would say, from our previous chief scientist um, who had the idea to give this a try. And so the first version of BFF was built um, and flown to the space station in 2018. It was up there, I think, for a little over a year before it came back for some upgrades. Of course, you know, we'd love to get everything right on the first try, but we realized there were some big improvements, we, small improvements we could make for a, a large gain on overall capability. So we brought it back and uh, then the pandemic hit, <laughs> which definitely slowed things down. But we brought it back up uh, November 22. And since then, we've had a couple of successful test prints just to check everything out. And now uh, we 3D bioprinted the first cellularized human knee meniscus in space. Um, and I will say seeing our senior scientist face when he opened the uh, cassette, what we print into on the ground, um, he was absolutely ecstatic to see. And he looked like a mad scientist. He was so excited, but he was ecstatic to see that we had 3D printed a human knee meniscus. And, you know, working on that project has really helped open our eyes to all the things we can do with a 3D bioprinter. And it's a lot more than I think we ever thought when it was conceived and we were going to print heart cells and make them beat and just kind of try to start laying the groundwork for helping with organ replacement and tissue regeneration. But now we realize that we can actually lay the groundwork for it. 
and it's really exciting to see how well it works. On the science side of things, um, it, help us understand like the the way this fits in, or or the honestly why the ISS was like right test bed for this. Um, it there's non health related you know printing has been talked about a lot in space when it's fiber optics or tools on the ISS that's been used for a while. Like hey, we don't have this wrench, and it's going to be a while till you can send one up to us. Can you send us the you know, the part uh, file for that and we'll print one out so that we can use it up here. But on the health side of things, I think it's it's murkier for people. You know, my wife's a physician, but I'm not. So it's harder for me to understand uh, the, the kind of ins and outs of this and and the differences or, or even honestly some of the similarities from stuff that we do down here on the ground and why in space is better for this application. Yeah, so that's a great question, Anthony. So first of all, um, there are bioprinters here on the ground. People um, have developed bioprinters for printing uh, small tissue or tissue constructs on the ground. Um, none have been developed for uh, real therapy at this point, but you can see that there's a trend towards that, right? People are going to make more, more complex systems, and ultimately that's the goal. The problem is when you go to build tissue on the ground, a lot of these, uh, the materials that you're printing with, are um, you know liquid? They're not much more uh, viscous than water. So when you print them out, they all just sort of settle out. It's like a puddle; it just spreads out. Um, so what you do on the ground is you either print into or use a matrix to build uh, it up, right, to hold it all together, or you use some chemical additives, and those end up being uh, having an effect on the final product and how you can use it, what it's actually going to be good for. So when you go to the microgravity environment, you no longer need these support matrices. You can just pile up things that, again, are just slightly more viscous than water, and they'll hold their form. Now, it does require us to put them into a special incubator and sort of um, uh, cure them or gel them over a number of weeks. But once it's done, they have, they're firm enough you can bring them down just as we did with the um, meniscus print, and, and you know, they hold together and hold their form. So that's the benefit, the real benefit. And ultimately, it will allow us to print very large, you know, relatively speaking, large constructs that could end up being used for testing or for therapy. And when we're talking about the, the cellular prints, um, in terms of material, what does that actually mean? Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, there, you talked about the, I think the culturing is the way it was referred to. Is that kind of the, the phase where it sets into its final form? Yeah, so what we print with is a mixture of cells and um, a matrix, a, a material like um, happens in your body. There's your cells and then other materials, and we print them together. Uh, and then there's often other additives that you add that will um, enhance a cell's ability to, uh, to thrive and to find other cells like it and sort of interact with them and ultimately develop a network, which is what you're trying to get to with a more complex tissue. Um, I got distracted because I was looking at this video, I think, that you were talking about of, of it being unpacked. And uh, <laughs> it is a, a pretty weird looking uh, thing when it's just floating in free space and not in someone's knee. So it <laughs> yeah. distracted me for a minute. Um, the selection of, of the meniscus, um, you know, it's a super common in injury. Uh, I think my dad's had like I don't even know how many meniscus surgeries over the years. He's tried all sorts of different stuff to repair a meniscus. I think my sister's had issues and none of us are like professional athletes or anything that uh, <laughs> it's really impactful. So I, I know that it's a, 
highly applicable um, thing. But was it selected purely for that reason that it, that it's a you know an area of a lot of focus, or or is there something about the way that a meniscus is constructed that made it a good test bed for this technology? Yeah, we I mean we we were approached by the Uniform Services University and uh, their company for the for the BioCubed and then the Geneva Foundation um, to do this kind of work because it's a it's a horseshoe shaped piece of material and that's a hard shape to maintain under gravity uh, because again trying to print something without any kind of supports or scaffolding or thickening agents or whatever it is something chemical to make it hold that shape is really difficult but we can do that in space because it won't collapse under its own weight and just kind of splash out into that puddle. And so um, we, this is actually the second print of the meniscus. We did an acellularized test print, um, and this is the first cellularized one. And it's the most common injury of our uniform service people, but also, as you said, anecdotally, Anthony, any of us who even play sports recreationally, it's either ourselves or, you know, one person removed from us has torn it. And so right now, the only way we repair them is to go in, scrape out the scar tissue, sew it together, cross our fingers, and <laughs> six years later, you tear it again. So this is kind of that first step in hoping to, to be able to replace someone's meniscus, because right now we just have no functional way to do it. Uh, like we do many other, like we do joints, um, because it's not actually a joint, and there's no good magic cure-all for it. On the operational side of this, um, from the space station angle, Dr. Saban, if you can talk about this angle of, of you know, what, what was involved from astronaut time in setting this up? Is it fairly self-contained or is it something that uh, required a lot of crew time to manage? So there's uh, different parts of this whole study, this whole experiment. First was getting the hardware up there. So that's a piece of it that is, you know, that, that takes time and effort. And uh, we had to fly. And as you said, you were watching the video, you, you fly up this large apparatus and the astronauts have to unpack it out of a capsule and they pull it over, plug in any wires that have to be plugged into the back and then slide it in. And then it runs through a check. We have to do some uh, test prints and make sure that we're communicating with it properly. And then after that, on another launch, most likely, you send up whatever you're going to print, the materials, you know, your uh, printer cartridge, if you will, with your materials and what you're going to print out. And uh, that gets then loaded in to the system. And uh, the astronauts have to make sure that it's powered up. It's operated semi-autonomously. So the astronauts don't have to do a whole lot. A lot of the hardware that we develop is uh, put together in such a way that it's minimal astronaut intervention. Astronaut time is expensive, and um, generally, they've got a lot of other things on their minds or doing a lot of other things. So if we can take some of the load off them, doing things on the ground and set them up for success, we're, we found that we're better off. Uh, once it is printed, it then does need an astronaut to pull it out the cartridge, the, the thing it was printed onto, the little stage, and then that goes into the incubator, which is right next to it, just adjacent. Actually, it's part of the same piece of equipment gets moved over there and then uh, incubated for probably three to four weeks. And then it gets pulled out, packaged by the astronauts, put into the capsule and brought down. And depending on the, the situation, we'll either fix it, which um, uh, is biology jargon for 
um, sort of kill it all, but put it into stasis. So it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to change. Uh, but in some cases, we're going to bring it back live. And that requires us to maintain uh, conditions, both you know, temperature, humidity, and what have you, so that it can survive its trip back. And how about the dynamics of reentry? That might be interesting to talk about as well. Uh, is that, you know, like, is is there certain orientations that has a sit in or anything like that? Yeah. Um, so generally, no. Um, and keep in mind that when it's put into the capsule and sort of packaged up, it's still in microgravity. So it's going to be, you know, disengaged from the station. It then slows down. That's how you bring things out of orbit is you slow them down and then they'll start to fall back to Earth. Um, and things are right now falling into the Atlantic off the coast of Florida, where a barge goes and picks them up. Uh, and then it gets brought back to uh, the Kennedy Space Center or uh, adjacent centers just off base where it's processed. But you bring up a good point, which is things that are brought back, and we, we you don't often think about this, but there are significant forces exerted on those uh, samples when they're brought back, both uh, straight G-forces as it's slowing down, but also there's a strong vibrational load. And when it does hit the ocean, even though it has parachutes and it's buffered, it's still somewhat jarring. So the packaging and uh, everything has to be taken into account to uh, a lot for that. And it's, I think we're a few, maybe a year away, two years away from having routine um, sample returns that are done via a different method that does not um, have to go through all that type of vibration and jarring. Molly, can you help us understand the way it fits into the roadmap for this sort of thing overall? Because, um, you know, you obviously with tech like this, you've got to start printing a meniscus, bringing it back, doing a bunch of tests. But, you know, uh, long term, it sounds more like this printing uh, tech is is more akin to something that we definitely would do in space and use on Earth rather than uh, print in space, use in space. Uh, like when we're going out to Mars or something, you want to bring a lot of material to print whatever tools you might need because you have no idea what you'll need by then. Maybe one day we'll print a meniscus on Mars and do surgery on Mars to repair it. But um, even nearer term than that is is kind of like the bulk production phase of this. So um, how do we get to that point? What kind of steps are between this and that? And uh, is that, given the economics of the day, even, even a realistic target? Or do we still have to wait for some other things to click into place? So please yeah. describe the entire economics of low Earth orbit between now and 30 years from now. Go. Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, I mean, I have a great commercialization plan for the whole thing, and it's just going to revolutionize the world. But uh, no, in all seriousness, you know, there's a there's a couple of pieces that need to come together to make this a viable a viable market and a viable solution for the the long the longer term organ transplant shortage here on the ground. Um, one is being able to produce, and I'm just currently going to start with the, the on-orbit part, um, is being able to produce enough cells to produce things like the meniscus or as we move to larger, more complex pieces of tissue, a pancreas or a heart patch or a piece of a liver. But you also need to be able to produce those cells uh, in quantity and space because there's we're not going to fly thousands of pounds or hundreds of kilos of stem cells to space. It's just not viable. So we need to create something like a cell factory to be able to grow enough cells to then create the bio inks and do the printing. And I think you had a really good time frame there. 30 years is really where I think before we're printing organs that would be usable and printing organs from a patient's own cells. 
to reduce the risk of rejection. One of the things that we need, and Ken, Ken really highlighted this, is being able to land things more gently. Uh, you know, I, anything we print right now is not going into a person, so we can have it splash down or crash down even and experience those G-forces, but we need to be able to land things easily. And then the other piece is more regular going and coming um, up mass and down mass to and from orbit so that we can actually have a regular cadence of organs coming for these patients. And I think, you know, maybe in 15 years, we'll be able to see things like organ patches being printed, um, possibly a meniscus, something that's pretty small and simple to print. But there's just a lot of little pieces in terms of the logistics of launch and reentry. And then in terms of physical space to be able to create the cells and have multiple printers to come back to Earth. I think the other piece of this, and I always hate saying it after we've been talking about human tissue, but in terms of, you know, astronauts on Mars or even on the moon, thinking about things like cultivated meat, where you're actually printing a steak. I mean, this bioprinter doesn't know what the cells it's printing come from, and our incubators don't know where the cells come from. So there's also the possibility of feeding astronauts in the future with this same technology, taking up a small number of cow cells, a few different varieties, again, growing those cells in space, and then printing a steak for an astronaut to eat. How they're cooking it, that's, you know, <laughs> another process <laughs> up for debate. Probably sous vide would be my best yeah. bet. It's the best point. way anyway, so yeah. they're in good shape. Yeah. Searing exactly. is tough. Searing is tough. Yeah. But, yeah. So, you know, so that's, it's, it's really, you know, we're focused on how we can help people here on earth every day, but there's definitely interest from groups about how they can use it for taking care of astronauts, feeding astronauts as we go further out to the moon and Mars. All right, blew my mind because I was not thinking in that direction. But I mean, yeah. it's the same fundamental issue as like the, the the spare parts and tools thing that has been talked about from the early days of like we don't know what we'll need, but we know we need a bunch of stuff. And uh, in the same way, on the food side, it's like, I mean, plants you can grow them, so we could take a little bit with us and get a lot on the back end. But uh, mm -hmm. you know, the lettuce section of the ISS has not been the most uh, abundant looking food source. So <laughs> I'll probably need to figure something else out in terms of calorie output. Yeah, I mean, radishes and lettuce and, uh, you know, uh, what is it, crests are not exactly the yeah. most calorie dense food. Yeah, yeah, there, so. <laughs> not, not breaking the budget on that side. Um, mm. the, the functionality of, of the roadmap they're talking about of, of being able to produce this kind of stuff in, in bulk, um, I feel like that is... I don't know, this, this starts to make sense to me when I see the tests at this scale happening and actually being able to see this activity. Um, put some of the stuff in context from the last like 10 years of the visualizations of, you know, what if we had this mostly autonomous space station that was producing stuff and astronauts would occasionally go up to kind of, you know, help the process, but things would be going up and returning on a regular basis. It, it does start to make a lot of sense. Um, I'm wondering if you think that the health side, both of you, could answer this for sure because there's perspectives uh, from either angle here. Um, if the health side of this market feels like one that would be earlier than you know the the fiber optics or pharmaceutical side of things, does it feel like any of the markets that are are leaning more in the direction of turning the corner business case wise? Uh, at least first, I'm sure at some point between now and forever, they all will make sense. But um, on on the technical roadmap that we're on as a humanity right now, 
Uh, does it feel like anyone has a, a edge to start? So for <clears throat> printing tissue, um, I don't, it's, biology in general is very difficult. There's a lot of things you have to do to make it work and it is living its own life, right? And you're stuck at the, at the whim of it in a way. Um, and I think there's a lot of complicated aspects of it that we don't really understand. So with all that in mind, I don't know if it's going to be the first thing that we actually do. I think even tissue printing on the ground is difficult and people have been working on it for over a decade trying to make it work. But I do think there are opportunities for us um, to have commercial impact and ultimately benefit to humanity doing things that aren't necessarily full organ or tissue therapy. And I think there's opportunities to develop models that can be used by the pharmaceutical industry to help them improve the way they uh, develop new pharmaceuticals. So when uh, fast, you know, make it faster and um, decrease the number of failures using these as models. I think there's an opportunity there. I think that has real viability from a commercial standpoint and would ultimately be something that would be very valuable. And there's already been, um, um, you know, statements from the FDA that uh, they can get away from animal testing, which is a key, right? They've always used animal testing for things like toxicology. And I think there'll be a point where certain models end up for the pharmaceutical industries to make financial sense, to get away from using a lot of animals, the, all the cost of housing them and veterinary services, in addition to the ethical quandary that they're in, right? So um, th that's that's how I look at it. That's what I think. And that's really the, why, the reason why I'm pursuing it. Because as Molly said, we're decades away. Um, and that, that from a standpoint of any type of investment, whether it's your, your time and my time or somebody's dollars, putting into something like that is tough. But there, there are stepping stones that will get us there. Um, and, the, and the other thing I would say is, in general, I think uh, people are um, underestimate how fast things are going to happen. They, uh, they underestimate how fast new breakthroughs will occur and how big those breakthroughs will be, generally. So uh, even though I do think it's going to be some time, there's going to be a point where we're all going to see a breakthrough, and it's going to be a mad dash. Everybody's going to see it. They're going to use it in a way just maybe similar to something like CRISPR, which in some ways came out of nowhere, but it changed the way a lot of biology is done and thought of. So those are my thoughts. What do you think, Molly? Yeah, no, I can. I think you you're you're spot on i think the only thing i would add is you know thinking about these models and using them um in place of animal testing one of the things there that's a really good path for us is the regulatory path and it's something that i'm always thinking about because it's a really big unknown unlike what we do on earth where someone from a regulatory body walks into a building and checks it inspects it makes sure everything's going right I highly doubt we're going to fly people to a space station to do regulatory checks. So how can we use these models to start this process of being able to get through the regulatory things, even if we're 30 years away from or 50 years away from first printed organ, starting to think about the regulatory piece today and working towards organoid models um, for FDA it, or in place of FDA animal testing to get drugs through clinical trials or to the point of clinical trials, I should say, of course, we're using human subjects in clinical trials, but to get things to the point of that helps us 
navigate that regulatory path to create a true commercial economy and create a business where we can help people here on earth every day, um, whether that's through creating organoids for drug testing um, or and or creating human tissue, human full organs in the future. Can you give us a sense for what else within Redwire is kind of on the, the health side of things? Or, you know, I've, I know there's a whole pharmaceutical section of the, the website, but I'm, again, some of these words are pretty big for my understanding of them. Uh, so I'd love the, a little bit of layout of, of how this fits into the rest of, of your health focus overall um, now and in the near future as well. Okay, so, so I'll, I'll kick it off. So um, the, we are looking at things. There's a couple of different areas, and I'll just touch on two. Um, the first is one that has been considered in the past in different ways, but it is a more pharmaceutical focused. It's uh, looking at the form that you produce pharmaceuticals in. And uh, generally, if you look at small molecule pharmaceuticals like um, aspirin or Tylenol, um, the, they're small molecules, small organic molecules, and they're generally produced as crystals. And there's a number of reasons that's done in the pharmaceutical industry. It makes them easy to purify and to um, sort of understand, make sure that they're pure and that you know what you've got. Um, and then those are taken and formulated into um, a pill that we, you know, find packaged and we go to the pharmacy. Um, what is, for me, was found, I found to be very interesting is that about half of all of those small molecule pharmaceuticals, uh, the, the crystals have problems. They're either mixtures of crystals or they don't form the same crystal every time or the crystals change over time um, or they don't form good crystals at all. And um, this idea of form has become a, a key idea for, hey, can we take advantage of making growing crystals in space? It's been shown over the last you know, three, four decades that you can grow larger, more perfect crystals in space because they aren't uh, suffering from the effects of gravity. They don't form to a certain size and fall out of solution. They don't have a turbulence caused by heat rising and what have you. Um, they're, they're more perfect. So um, somebody, uh, a, a friend of ours, Paul Reichert at Merck, ran a study and he showed that Keytruda, which is um, a monoclonal antibody um, a big protein pharmaceutical, um, when it's grown on the ground, when you grow these crystals on the ground, they tend to be a mixture of crystals. They were, Merck was never able to make a single crystal. Uh, and that leads you to problems when you make it. You have to make that same mixture every time and prove it. And it also makes it, um, makes it difficult for formulating and delivering to patients because you're essentially uh, delivering a mixture of materials and you have to account for that. So um, he had seen, there was literature had shown that they can grow not only bigger, better crystals in space, but all the crystals tend to be the same size and shape. They, they're, they're uniform. And the pharmaceutical industry, that's an important uh, statement. And uh, he was able to fly Keytruda into orbit and show that it made not only a crystal they had never seen before, but it made a single crystal. And uh, they were able to use that crystalline structure, bring it back down to the ground, and use it to grow other new crystals like it. So uh, we have a number of um, examples of that that we are flying on this next launch coming up in just a couple of weeks, and, uh, and then future launches. 
And we're going to be looking at that hard. So that's one area that we are really focused on. I think there's a lot of opportunity there to have impact. It's something that we understand. And it's chemistry, which I feel, and I hate to say this because I'm a chemist, but I think it's it's um, simpler than doing biology. That's uh, that's this one. So just to build on that, um, another um, area that we're looking at is production of nanomaterials. And uh, one particular nanomaterial that has applications in the healthcare sector are uh, gold nanospheres, tiny little golden balls. And it turns out, um, when, as, just as when you grow crystals, we should be able to grow very perfect structures that are um, like a, a gold, small golden ball in space and um, use that. And it turns out there are diagnostic tools that use gold nanospheres uh, and also some therapies that have um, been developed and FDA approved that use gold nanospheres. So uh, we're looking at that right now, and that's a, a future launch, which I believe is going to happen uh, towards the end of next year is when we're flying those experiments. Gold nanospheres is straight up a James Bond villain thing, though. So you know, just yeah. got to watch on the branding side because you definitely sound like you're yes. the, the headline uh, character. And I don't know who is James Bond now. I don't know I, if David yeah. Craig's still doing I don't know. it, but yeah. I feel like you're seconds away from being featured in that with your gold nano spheres. <laughs> oh yeah. Ken, Ken's ready to, to sell gold nano spheres to the world. Yeah. Um, and I love it because you know, it's, there's so many uses for it. And I think Ken hit really on the highlights of, you know, the fact that chemistry is easier than biology. And, um, it probably is, you know, from my point of view, I think it will be something more chemistry related that's going to hit sooner. I'd prefer it to be something biological because I think it probably have a bigger impact um, in the, you know, short, like a bigger impact overall for the first thing. But people just don't get as excited about a better form of a drug as they do about 3D printed tissue. But that's <laughs> just, you know, that's why we have great marketing and branding people. But I think the other piece of all of this is, you know, we we've we have so many different fields we're working in. We've talked about our bioprinting and tissue production. We've talked about crystal growing for pharmaceutical. Um, Ken's even hit a little bit on our material research with uh, our golden balls. Um, the other piece is the plant science, which, um, you know, we talked and kind of joked about the fact that we're not going to create enough calories for astronauts to eat, but there's been a lot of work and we're developing new hardware um, for plant science that really has the potential to help with some, some climate change, uh, things, you know, it's nothing's definitive because everything's only been done once or twice. And I'd really love to see someone use some of the new red wire hardware, uh, or greenhouse for growing plants to do some repeatable work to see how we can combat climate change with changes in gene expression that occur in microgravity for plants. And while again, it may not be quite as exciting as bioprinting a new liver that we're going to transplant into someone, it is a big piece of the research that we're doing and um, uh, probably a little less sexy than tissue engineering like we're talking about today, but just another piece of all the things we're working on at Redwire. The last question I had written down was to get an understanding of um, the the kind of scope and scale of the operations on the ISS today and what you, you know, the last time we chatted, I think we were talking a lot about commercial space stations, Molly, and, and like, you know, that's still in a weird spot overall. But um, if, if you kind of have a, a sense of 
are you at the limits of what you can do in the ISS today in terms of size and scale and how many other people are on the ISS doing stuff um, and what that might look like when you get into the next generation uh, space stations? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a physical space limitation on the ISS at this point. Um, and whether that means people need to bring things down, which we're trying to do, we've, you know, we have as a company developed 20, 20 research payloads, have 10 on station. And, you know, I'd love to see all of us who have all these payloads on station, if we have anything sitting there that's not necessary, bring it down so we could bring more up. Um, I know that actively NASA is trying to make space for testing things for the commercial Leo destinations, the the next generation of space stations. It's, I don't know that the ISS has reached its limit of what we can do, but currently the physical space limitation is limiting some of it. One of the things that we're lucky about with Redwire is we have uh, two facilities, two of each of these facilities also. So we have four facilities that are really modular. So for us, it's just a matter of changing a small piece and reflying it rather than flying new facilities all the time. And so we're able to do more and do new things because all we have to do is modify this small box, what we call a cassette, that we send back and forth rather than having to modify the whole facility. So I think in terms of science and in terms of breakthrough, we definitely haven't met the limit, but in terms of physical size, we're probably nearing that if not at it. So I don't think we'll see us adding 10 more payloads to the station, hopefully a few more before it's end of life to test them. But you never know, maybe um, somehow the station will get bigger and we can add a few other things to it. Yeah, you can you could sneak a box or two on the Axiom flights. I think they exactly. probably have the room, right? They don't have a lot to, <laughs> to figure out between now and building out a second space station on the space station. Feels like you no, can slip that no. in. <laughs> exactly. You know, just call them up. Hey, we got this little yeah. package. What um, else are they doing? Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's a great example of how the space station can and is expanding in ways. And, you know, who knows? Maybe there's someone who'll come up with another inflatable they want to attach and test. Um, you know, the future, I think, well... There's currently an end date to station. I think there's still a lot of possibilities for things that can happen there. Um, it's just currently we're the physical space limit that exists, but there's not a limit on the science or um, the technology possibilities in my mind. It's also stuff like this, though, that feeds into the decisions that get made on ISS and for ISS. Like, you know, when, when you have a breakthrough, that's going to feed back into planning within NASA. How that actually happens, I don't know how much you can talk about that, but you know, I'm sure there are people at NASA that are very interested in what do we actually need to accommodate? You know, the, the requirements for the new space stations came from somewhere because it's what kinds of things is there interest in working with? What do we need to accommodate? So the more that there's breakthroughs in certain areas and the importance of those kind of facilities goes up, then, you know, there's hopefully more of a layout and a budget for accommodating that kind of stuff. So it's not wholly separate. Um, and, you know, at the same to the same point that these stations need to figure out who is not NASA that is going to pay them money to do things on station, the more there is this market that's outside of whatever NASA is interested in uh, can certainly help them turn the corner on business case as well and create a better situation overall for, you know, the station. So, um, Ken, has, have, I don't know, on the science side of things, has there been discussions either officially or unofficially of, about the kind of work that's going on here and, and how that might uh, need to be uh, adjusted for future space station plans? Um, yeah, absolutely. So, First of all, NASA is keenly aware of kind of their role or, or their responsibility 
to use taxpayer dollars to accomplish great things. So they, um, when they put out new proposals, they're always or requests for proposals. They're always asking for things that they believe or they've been advised are key areas that need to be addressed. So, for example, there's a big push for semiconductor-related work now. That's part of the overall U.S. effort to towards semiconductor development, and um, so they. They do consider that. At the same time, they're looking to people like Molly and I and the people that Molly and I go out and find who are the principal investigators, who are you know, the best scientists and engineers, what have you, in, in America, coming to us saying, hey, this is the thing you need to be focused on. This is going to be the breakthrough or whatever. So you can see there's a struggle on the NASA side because they're being, all this is being brought to them and they're having to work through it. So they have advisors and um uh, you know, and if you ask me, do they make mistakes sometimes? Sure, NASA makes mistakes sometimes, but generally they're getting it right and they're doing the right thing and they're thinking about it in the right way. So, uh, in that way, I I feel really I feel really good about it. I think um, going back to the the comments around um, resources, like do is space is space on station the limiting resource? I think we have to start also thinking about the number of flights and the space we have on flights. Um, with this SpaceX mission and its return, uh, it will be the first of the last 18 returns that we will have from station that are scheduled for its life. There are only 18 left. The others, um, Northrop Grumman flights do not return with payloads. So, um, so in thinking about that, going back to your point of how do we turn this into a commercial endeavor where we're bringing things back, we've got to start thinking about the plan beyond station, right? That's something else we're thinking about. And use station for, for what it was intended, which was not to be a platform for manufacturing a lot of things, but to help us find what to manufacture and to prove it out, show that it works. And then the next generation systems will be more built for purpose, right? Allow us to be more specific about how we're you how they're used. And um, so, so that's where I see things right now. And the, the other limitation that I'll tell you has been um, a striking for me is that we're doing this work, you know, uh, let's say growing pharmaceutical crystals. How do we find the pharmaceutical companies that have the problems and get them engaged? And there's still a separation. People, a lot of people still aren't aware that there's a space station that they have access to that they could use and could help solve their problems. And even if they do know that, uh, I was a principal investigator before my career here with Red Wire, and um, I worked at a pharmaceutical company, and there were people in the company who, for eight years, tried to find somebody at NASA to help them fly an experiment and could not do it. They struggled and struggled and struggled, and then somebody called me and said, hey, we had to do this, and I got connected. I connected them to these people, and they flew it within just, um, it was about two years from that point. So I think that's the other piece. It's an awareness issue that we have to overcome uh, and get the right people engaged in these types of programs now, sooner than before it's too late, for station at least. That was uh, a perfect spot to, to end it. I got a little bit sad talking about 18 returns from the space station, even as somebody who's like, I got to figure out what's after this. Uh, I've been like really harping on that note, but I was like, oh man, that's a really interesting way to frame it. So uh yeah, and, and you know, you were talking about gentler returns earlier, Molly, and we got we'll see what Dream Chaser gets to when when that starts yeah. flying up and down. That would be uh, interesting in terms of gentler than crashing into the ocean. So, um, 
interesting times for sure. And I hope that we can check back in and talk about this stuff as y'all make progress. But I, I really, really appreciate you both hanging out with me today. And um, is there anywhere, anything in particular, either of you want to point people to? I've got links in the show notes to some of the videos and the uh, the press release about the the latest thing. But any, anything else that you think they should follow along with if they're uh, curious? I think any of our social media, um, we always have such great pictures and videos on there. I mean, I work for the company and I still check it daily uh, just to see what amazing pictures and videos I'm not getting in my email from every, from, from, you know, whoever takes them. Um, And it's really amazing all the stuff we're doing and being so excited about everything because Redwire is, you know, we're focused today on what we're doing in the ISS, but we're such a diverse company doing so many different things. And it's really fun to kind of learn about all these different facets of space, um, of space work, really. Um, So I would just say follow any of our social media to check out the fun pictures and cool projects that we're working on in the ISS and beyond. Yeah, and there is a launch coming up. Um, I think it's on the 5th is when it's scheduled for, but if you get a chance, um, look on uh, the um, NASA webpage. They should have that live and... Always exciting thing to participate in if you can get there. Yeah, I highly recommended that. Uh, it's a nice time of year in Florida, too. So that would be awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks again to Molly and Ken for joining me on the show. It was really cool to hear. Uh, about all sorts of topics that are definitely you know off the off the path of what we usually talk about on the show, uh, but definitely an area that uh, is of quite a lot of interest to me. Not only in how it fits into the overall market of space, but you know the near future and, and how it might shape the near and far future. Honestly, uh, so really really cool to hear what they're working on on that side of things. This show is brought to you by 872 supporters over at managingcutoff.com/support, including 35 executive producers who made this episode possible. Thanks to Donald, Lee, Fred, Chris, Benjamin, Pat, Jan, Chris, Craig from SpaceHappyHour.com, Will and Lars from Agile Space, The Astrogators at SCE, Harrison, Eunice, Steve, Theo and Violet, Bob, Joel, Tim Dye, David Ashnot, David, Pat from KC, Ryan, Russell, Stealth, Julian, Brandon, Warren, Tyler, Don Aerospace, Matt, Frank, Small Spark Space Systems, and four anonymous executive producers. Thank you all so much for your support. As always, if you head over to managingcutoff.com slash support, you can join the crew there. If you're a member at $3 a month or more, you get access to Miko Headlines, where I run through all the stories uh, that you need to know about. I definitely cut out some of the ones you don't need to know about because I read and filter all the space news for you. So it keeps you up to date on what's going on in space, helps support this show, an entirely listener-supported show. So if you like what I'm doing, please, please join up, help out, and uh, keep it all going. Thank you all so much for listening. As always, thanks for your support. If you've got any questions or thoughts, hit me up on email, anthony at managingcutoff.com. As always, find the show notes at managingcutoff.com itself. And uh, otherwise, thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.